Good morning, everyone. Oh, you're sleeping and I haven't even started preaching yet. Good morning, everyone. Good. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, will you please open them up to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 um, to chapter 10, verse 4. It's not as long as it sounds. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35, and we'll end in chapter 10 verse 4. While we just turn there, let's pray. Lord, we, man, we just want to commit this time to you. You are glorious. You are good. Um, and Lord, we, we desire this morning to hear from you, not to hear from Joey. Man, I, Lord, I, bring, I don't bring words that are of any value, but Lord, you do. You change hearts. You change lives. Um, you encourage us. And, and Lord, that's what we desire this morning, to be encouraged by you, to hear from you, um, would you stir in us a deep love for Jesus? May we come away with just man having a deep awe and wonder of this incredible God named Jesus Christ who loves us so much. And Lord, when they, they stir, this, stir, that, stir us into action, we, we want to be a people on the move for your kingdom and for your glory, we pray. And so Lord, we ask that uh, may, uh, may you be lifted up and glorified this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to chapter 10, verse 4. It goes as follows. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. It goes like this. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And he called to them his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and uh, Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who would betray him. There is um, few things in this world that can tire us out as much as serving people. Serving people can be very beneficial and helpful to us, but when you do it for long periods of time, man, at the end of it, you can be exhausted, you can be drained, um, you can be tired. Even just being around people a lot can be tiring, right? This is why if you haven't seen someone for, or seen people for a long time, you've been hidden away in a cave, you, you long and desire to see people, but when you've been around people a lot, you just kind of want to hide away, just have some me time, not have people around us. We see this in uh, the countryside when those who don't have loads of people around them all the time, when a friend pops by unexpectedly, it's very welcomed. Even to a point that in the country they have a reputation of, man, if you don't even know them, you could knock on their door and they might offer you a cup of coffee and bring you inside. But living in inner city Cape Town, inner city Joburg, even here in East London in the city, um, we don't uh, like it when our friends just randomly pop over unexpectedly. We might not say something, but we might think, man, aren't they a bit rude? They just arrived. Couldn't they have called me up to let me know first? 
Um, and if a stranger had to come and knock on our doors, the, we just kind of open up a little bit. What do you want? No, thank you. Bye. And we close the door. Um, it's because it can be extremely, extremely draining when we're around people a lot. We, we see this in families. Sometimes one spouse works a lot and the other doesn't. And so when the one spouse comes home and wants to have a sit down and relax and the other one just wants to catch up and talk and it can cause a bit of friction because the, the, for in traditional, traditionally the husband might want to just sit down and relax and watch TV but the, the wife who's been looking after the kids, which by the way is a full-time job, I've had my kid for the last two days, and I'm exhausted. I'm going, oh, I can't wait for work on Monday. Uh, I can just go and relax. Um, but the, the husband gets home, sick of seeing people. The wife just wants to have an adult conversation, and there can be friction that is caught. Because, man, people can be draining. But on top of this, we live in a city where people are draining, and sometimes we just want to be on the side, and we've kind of mentioned it with the good news thing that's coming up. There's so much of bad news that is vying for our attention all the time. So much of that. And it can be draining. We hear about famines and diseases and murders and corruption and farm murders and, and hijackings and break-ins and, and a divorce and this and that. And it can just be so draining on us. Um, and more so in our modern times than ever before. Back in World War II, when those things were happening, many had to wait months to hear what was happening to receive um, uh, information of what was happening in the war. But now, with modern technology and cameras and that, we can find out in instance. Most of us in this room, if you're old enough, can remember where you were when 9-11 happened, right? I can. I can remember I was walking into... Back from, home, uh, back from school, I walked into my grandparents' room. I still had my blazer and my bag on my back, and I saw the first tower had been hit, and it was not long, and I saw the second one be hit. I can still remember it. Now, most of us know, know like, that something happens, a, a, all right. something happens across uh, on the other side of the world, um, and it's all right. It's okay. Uh, something happens on the other side of the world, and what happens is, man, we um, we get we need to know about it. Think of the the uh, the um, shooting that took place in New Zealand. Most of us knew by the time we got home that that had taken place. By the time we woke up, that had taken place. It's just because, man, we are constantly being vied for the attention. Listen to this, worry about this. And as a result, what happens is, because now the world has actually gotten smaller with technology and we need to worry about this and that, our hearts have become hardened to the sufferings of this world. What should have been, man, we worrying about our own city and our own suburb and the people around us, when we should be worrying about the kids on the street that we drive past, the homeless and the hungry in our own suburb, that suffering doesn't seem as bad as what's going around and around the world, and so we harden towards it. And I'm guilty of this myself. We, we, we see people and we go, nah, but you know what's happening in Syria? You know what's happening in Sudan? Those things are far worse, and so we get hardened to what we see, the suffering here. And I tell you all of this and I say all of this because I feel that in this passage where we find ourselves in, Jesus is, uh, is under the same pressure. There, he has gone through so much stuff and, and been around and rubbed shoulders with so many people and seen so many different types of diseases. Let's read it again. It says in verse 35, it says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. 
and this was in Galilee. And he, he preached in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel and healing every disease and every affliction. There's this historian named um, Josephus. Um, he becomes a generation after Jesus. So gener- Jesus had died and he was born and he was a historian, a non-Christian historian. And he wrote often about Jews and it's in non-Christian accounts even of Jesus. He has in his letters, he mentions Jesus and Christians. It's very interesting. But one of the things that he says is that he goes and he counts all the villages and towns and cities in Galilee. There were 204. And Jesus went to all of them. He also gives an account that in every single one, none of them had less than 15,000 people living in it. And if you had to do the maths quickly, it's around about 3 million people that lived in Galilee. And here is Christ who went and rubbed shoulders with this amount of people going to this many cities. And if Jesus had to visit a village or a town, two of them, each day, two a day, it would take him roughly four months to do it. That's a lot of work. That is a lot of rubbing of shoulders. That is busy. And if if we can think of spending a week of holiday club with 400 kids running around crazy, imagine what Christ is at the end of this. He must be exhausted and drained. And we see that there are times when he desired rest and at the end of the day he would move up into a mountain or he would just move away from the crowd just to rest. At points we see him climb into a boat and cross from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other, but the crowd knows where he's going and runs around to meet him. So when he gets off, he's there. At the end of all of this ministry of visiting to all the towns and preaching and healing, every affliction and every disease, every heartache, every hurt, every problem dealing with these types of people, Christ looks at the crowd and what does he do? He's not like us who are hardened. (sighs) These guys, man, could they go away. Their problems aren't as bad. I saw this problem. He's not. What happens is, Scripture says he has compassion. He sees this crowd and he has compassion upon them. It says that in verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Ordinary men and women suffering different hardships and heartaches, here Christ has compassion on them. It's this incredibly beautiful thing. The word compassion here. Uh, comes from a Greek word that literally, uh, the root word of it means uh, bile's, or gut. Have you ever, it's, a, it's a really descriptive, like a, a, you know when you've experienced heartache or hurt that it, you literally feel it? It's like eh, someone's hit you in your gut, you receive news that you didn't want to, it feels hurt. This is the kind of description that you, is used for Christ regularly. That when he sees suffering and hardship, man, he feels like it's in his guts. It's not just, oh, shame. It's, oh, it literally hurts him. It's compassion that moves him. It moves his stomach. It, it hurts every part of him. And as I said, we, we see this throughout the Gospels, this word used for Jesus. We see that it, this word used for Jesus, that Jesus had a compassion, a, a gut-filled compassion for the world's pain. We see in Matthew, this word used in Matthew 14, verse 14, that talks about how he was moved with a gut-felt compassion for the sick. Matthew 20, verses 34, it's for the blind. Mark 9, verse 22, it's for those who are gripped by a, a demonic. He, he is moved. He has affliction for their affliction. 
He couldn't see suffering of people without being moved and longing to want to ease their pain that they were going through. Again, we see this word used for the world's sorrow. In Luke 7 verse 13, there's a story of a widow that is walking behind um, her son who is dead, going off to be buried. What a tragic story. Lost a husband already and now has just lost a son and he's about to be buried. And Christ sees the scene play out and man, he breaks. His gut is moved. He has compassion for this lady. He's going to wipe away every tear. That's what he desires. And one day, church, it might not happen on this side of the grave, but the hope that we have as Christians is that there is a kingdom that Christ is going to usher in. And he, we see in Revelations 21 that God himself will wipe away every tear. There will be no more crying, no more pain, no more mourning or death anymore. This is what we long for, and Christ will be there to do it for us. We see in Matthew 15, verses 32, this word for compassion used again when Jesus sees the crowd who are hungry. And it stirs him so much that he calls a boy with five loaves and two fish, and he will feed the masses because he does not want to see them go hungry. We see it in Mark 1, verses 41, that Jesus has compassion, deep compassion, for the world's loneliness. Man, there's this leper that Christ sees. Now, you've got to understand leprosy is a, a skin disease that is very contagious. And as a result, without modern medicine, without anything along those lines, the people who had leprosy in Jesus' day would have to be cast out of the city by themselves or where other lepers were. And they would be lonely and they wouldn't have no contact with anyone else. Now you might go, no, that's not too bad. I get to hang out with other guys and we get to have a little village. No, no, you get to suffer by yourself while you leave your family. Think about it. One day you're there spending time with your kids, your spouse, and you find you've got this disease. You go to the priest, he checks it out. It is leprosy. You need to leave. You never get to hug your children again. You never get to kiss your husband again. Good night. None of that gets to happen. You get removed from society. You are lonely and no one wants to touch you. If you come into the city, you have to ring a bell shouting, unclean, unclean, so that anyone else would be able to scatter away and move out. They wouldn't even let your shadow, your shadow touch them. A fearful leprosy. And Christ looks upon this person who has leprosy and he not only just shouts from a distance, you are healed, but he goes and he touches and embraces with love and he has compassion and he heals. This compassion is moved in Christ regularly for all types of diseases in every type of person. We see this in the, the two chapters that precede this. Jesus finishes the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. But in chapter 8 and chapter 9, what we see is Christ goes on through Galilee, healing every affliction and disease. From those who are blind, to those who are lame, to, to those who can't speak, to those who are suffering with uh, demon possession, to, a, um, to the calling of Matthew, to the calming of storms. Christ does it all. And he does it for all types of people as well. And church, I, I, I want us to hear and see the compassion of Christ because I want you to know, regardless of the difficulty that you might be going through, I want you to know that Jesus has compassion on you. He does. He, his gut is stirred as he sees you suffering. 
He has compassion for you. No matter how difficult your situation might be, no matter how sore or painful or impossible it might seem, I want you to know that the hand of God is not too short that it cannot reach you where you're at. It cannot. It can move and get and rid you of your suffering. It's a loving hand that cares for you. He has compassion. And you might say to me, but Joe, you don't know who I am. You don't know what role I have played to put myself in this, and God will not help me. But when we look through Matthew 8 and Matthew 9, as we scatter through this, we see that Christ helps all types of people. He helps Jews, but he also helps the Gentiles. He helps the rich, but he also helps the poor. He helps those who are leaders and powerful and have authority, but he also helps those who have none at all and outcasts of the city. He helps men, he helps women. He helps the clean, he helps the unclean. He helps all types of people. And the beauty of the gospel is this church, that we do not have to sort ourselves out before we come to God. We get to come to God first and then he sorts us out. It's the wonderfulness of the the grace that we have in Christ. And so I want you to be encouraged this morning to know that your situation is not too big and you are not too far gone that God cannot save you. This is a wonderful verse in Psalm 118 verses 1 to 2. The NLT puts it lovely. It says this, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my prayer for mercy. Because he bends down to listen. He bends down to listen. It's beautiful imagery. I will pray as long as I have breath. The call of the gospel is to cry out to God. Plea for mercy. Ask him to come and he will hear your prayer. He will bend down and his hand will come. It's beautiful. And so I encourage you to do that. But what is Jesus particularly moved here? Because this, in this verse, there's compassion that is given. His gut is stirred. But what particularly is it stirred for in this passage? Well, it says in the scripture that it's because they are harassed and helpless because they are without a shepherd. Harassed and helpless without a shepherd. And without a shepherd gives us a description of why they are harassed and helpless. Um, without a shepherd here means without a leader without someone to draw them closer to God. Because the Pharisees and the priests and the Sadducees and the scribes, the Orthodox teachers of the day, um, weren't allowing people to come to God. They weren't ushering them to God like a shepherd would with sheep. But rather instead, they were making it more difficult for the ordinary person to come to know God. Instead of making the way easier, they put obstacles in their way. Instead of telling those who were suffering with burdens to come and lay their burdens at God's feet, the leaders of the day, the religious elite, made it more difficult and added more burdens on the people. And so Jesus looks upon these people and he says they are harassed and helpless. Now the description here, the imagery that is used here is incredible. The, the state of harassed or, or bewilderment is, is one of a mangled corpse, someone who has been plundered, someone who is exhausted, absolutely broken from a long journey, but there seems to be no end. That's the imagery that is used here of harassed. 
and helpless was this idea of someone being flat out on their face because they were drunk or because um, they are mortally wounded. Can you just see the imagery that Christ sees? He looks upon this crowd that have followed him and come, and spiritually he sees that they are like a corpse that is mangled, helpless lying on the ground, exhausted and weary from a long journey, but just don't seem to know when the end is. And his gut is moved, because this is where they are spiritually. And I, I wonder if we had to open up our eyes and look at the crowds around us. We had to look at our colleagues that we work with, look at the men and women in our suburb or neighborhood or in the mall, wherever we might go. And we had to have the eyes of Christ that we would be able to see past all the, um, all the glitz and the glamour of life that people seem to, seem to put up on social media. Things are going great. Look at my new car. Oh, look at this lovely meal that I've had. Been at the beach, lovely day, hashtag. All these things that we like to do. But if we had to look past all of this facade that we put up, I wonder if we would be able to see people like this. And I think we would. We would see people who are harassed and helpless, who are longing for something. That behind their sin, that was Mark was talking about, that behind their sin, that, that desire for a satisfaction, a desire for a relationship, a desire for love, a, a desire for acceptance, behind all of that, as they seek it in everything but cannot find it but keep on going, that actually what they need is God. And actually what they need is God. That's what they need. And man, as they, as they find that and as they see that, they will come to know Christ. And the call here by Christ is what is he has. He has this compassion upon him. And he, he, sees this, he sees this crowd. And what does he do? He calls his disciples to himself. Come in. And he says these famous words, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Christ's compassion towards this crowd who are mangled and who are like corpses, who are, are dying spiritually and need an end, is that he comes in and he says, I need you to pray. I need you to pray to God that he will send out more laborers to harvest this. Essentially, he's saying, these people who are harassed, these people who are helpless, man, they are ripe for the picking. They need to hear the gospel. They are ready for it. And all they need to hear is this good news. And what we need is more people to go and tell them the good news. So what must we do? Should we set up mission strategies as as a church, how can we, man, reach the suburb better and, and let's think of some missions. Man, that's a great idea. I think we should do that. I, I think we should, as a, as, a, as a church, and maybe train other churches. If we get this right, we can train other churches how to do it right so that they can reach the city as well. Maybe we can set up organizations um, such as seminaries in strategic parts of the city where we can help people contextualize how to reach those that are there. Great idea. Maybe we can even send out and get an international foundation 
where we get international funding. It's great. They've got all the dollars and pounds. That sounds amazing. Maybe we can do that and uh, we can reach the city, but also the world. Those are all good ideas, and, and maybe by the grace of God, we can one day do all those things. But the first, those things are all secondary steps. The first step that Christ calls us to pray for the harvest is to pray that the laborers come to it. We need to pray for laborers for the harvest. That's our first port of call. That's where we need to go for Christ. Why? Why, do, why is this important? Well, I think it's important for two reasons. I think it's the first reason why I think it's important that we pray for more laborers is because we need God-sent men and women. God-sent men and women. The danger is we can train people up and send them out, but it's, it's just not nearly as great when God stirs something on somebody's heart. When God says, Joe, I need you to go. When he says, Alf, I need you to go. When he tells us we need to head out. When he does that and he calls us to go and do stuff, what he does is he lays on our hearts a desire that does not quit, but also a gifting that is needed for that area. He endows us with the gifts that we need, the spiritual gifts, so that we can be effective. And when God calls someone to something, man, they are effective for Christ. Something that's lasting, they persevere through hardship. They go on because Christ has called them to it. We need God-sent men and women. But I think the second reason why we are called to pray as well is because it softens our own hearts. As I said at the, at the top of the sermon, what happens is our hearts uh, get hardened by all the suffering. But when we open our eyes and we see the, the people and we start to pray for them, pray that they would come to know Christ. Pray that God would send out more people to, to labor for them. And we say, Lord, there's an urgent need. You need to go and do it. As we pray for people, what happens is our heart becomes softened and we desire to meet that urgent need. Does that make sense? Is that's why Jesus calls us to pray for our enemies, to pray that God, that we would forgive others that we do not like or have hurt us. Why? Because you cannot pray for someone and still hate them. It's just, it's, it's, it's just one of the amazing things that God does in your heart. And you cannot have a hard heart toward the world's suffering when you pray for it regularly. And what happens is God starts to stir in us a calling on our hearts to go and reach that, that, that suffering, to go and share the gospel. So that's important for us to understand is that prayer is vital, but it's not everything. Hear what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that prayer is not important. Man, it is extremely important. Without it, our work fails. But God uses us as we pray that that need will be reached. He will use us to go and reach that need. There's a story of Martin Luther, and if you don't know him, He's a fa one of the church fathers. He, he's the um, man of the Reformation. Um, he did an incredible work for the glory of Christ. And what he does is he has this mate, um, a friend, uh, who has the same heart that Martin Luther had. And uh, he, came, he was a monk, though. And so he came to Martin Luther and said, you go and do all the work. And while you're doing all the work, what I will do is I'll pray for you. And there was a great deal. And so Martin Luther was in the battlefield, blood, sweat, and tears, fighting for the gospel and justification by faith alone, going for it. And this man would pray. And one night his friend had a dream. And in this dream, he sees this world with a, this world covered in a harvest. 
full of a field that is ripe for the picking. And there was one laborer, one guy harvesting away. And there was this feeling of, man, it's an impossible task. He will never be able to get it done. It was heartbreaking for the man who was having this dream. And he wakes up, and in an instant he realizes, man, oh, and before the end of the dream, he sees that laborer's face, just a glimpse of it, and it was Martin Luther. And he wakes up from it, and he says, I need to stop praying. I need to go down and do some work. And the call from Christ is for us not only to pray for the laborers, to be the laborer, to go out. Now, you might say to me, Joe, again, you don't know who I am. You, I'm not one of the disciples. I, I can't, I'm not as, I haven't walked with Jesus for a number of years. I, I'm not the guy that can do this. But friends, what Jesus does is he, he calls his friends in and he sends them out. We see that in chapter 10, he gives them authority and he sends them out to go out and reach the world for him, or in this case, Jerusalem, and later the world. But I love what, what happens here in Matthew. He lists the apostles. He gives them his names, their names. And when you run through the list, you actually realize how ordinary the disciples were. They were just ordinary men. Actually, may I say, some of them were rather not ordinary, but unordinary, below average. And when we, so let's look at some of the names. We, we see first that there was Peter, man, he was given the name Simon at birth, but Jesus gives him the name Peter, and Peter means rock. He's meant to be the stable rock with the church, the confession that Peter has, and, and through his ministry, the church would be founded. But he was very unstable. We see Peter can walk on water one moment and then sink into the waves the next. We see Peter can stand up in Acts 2 and proclaim the gospel to thousands of people and 3,000 will be saved. But later on in Galatians 2, he's hiding and cowering and denying the truth of the gospel just to a few. We, we see that there is um, James and John. They were rather upper class, rich people that had it all foregoing for them and expected to be Jesus' main leaders when the kingdom came in but also had a hot temper, apparently. They were called sons of thunder. You imagine you had such a temper that people called you sons of thunder because you just made so much noise and got upset so quickly. Then you have Andrew, who was a quiet guy, very seldomly mentioned in Scripture, kind of at the background, and he is outshone by his more gifted brother, Peter. In fact, he introduces Peter to Jesus, but yet Peter becomes the main guy, and he doesn't. He's in the back, very quiet. Then there is, uh, very interestingly, Simon the Zealot. Now, zealots were um, a name given to a group of people who were uh, revolutionists. that wanted to fight against uh, Rome, but like hectically, like terrorist type of stuff, assassinations, those kinds of things. And Simon was one of these. He hated the oppression of Rome. He did not believe, the group of people did not believe that J Jerusalem needed a king. God was their king. They were extremists. Not kind of the guy you would expect on Jesus' disciples. But then you've got Matthew or Levi, who was a tax collector for Rome, he was essentially a traitor that jumped to the other side and oppressed the people to make money, but Christ would use them. And yet somehow these two would work together. Below average people, I'm telling you. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, was known for his sincerity. 
Thomas was famous for his pessimism, just negative guy, never going to work, doubted all the time. The remaining disciples were Philip, uh, James, um, the son of Ophius, and Thaddeus. Um, we're rather colorless people. We hardly know anything about them at all. They don't do any amazing things in Scripture. We don't know about them. And then lastly, you've got um, Judas, who kind of betrays Jesus. Just a small act of bad. But yet here Christ sends them all out. And I just want to end with this, is that we draw this, that we realize that Christ can use the unstable. He can use the upper class and aggressive. He can use the quiet person that no one notices, the mediocre and even the unbelieving. He expects us to pray with sympathy for the needs of the people. And he expects us to be moved that for the people who are most harassed and helpless for the glory of Christ. And so I hope the sermon encourages you but challenges you at the same time. Know that God sees you. His compassion is for you. But man, also know that he wants that to be given. That same comfort that you can have in Christ. The same hope that you can have. He wants that to be given to the world. He wants that hope to be shared. And he wants to use you. And so friends, we have an easy thing. We, I want to, we, we've got this good, how about some good news for change taking place next week. And man, it's for those who are harassed and helpless. Invite them along. And, and may, just lastly, I was going to end off there, but it just popped into my mind. I'm going to be obedient here. Is you might feel harassed and hopeless yourself and you're going, Joe, until I sort myself out, man, I don't think I'm going to do that. <laughs> but I, I want you to remind you of last week's sermon. In, in Psalm 18, this guy has gone through hardship and difficulty, but yet there's these incredible words that he sings. He says, For who is God but our Lord, and who is a rock except our God, a God who equipped me with strength and made a way, my way blameless. He made, my feet like a, uh, he made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on heights. He, has, he trains my hands for war so that arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me a shield of salvation. Your right hand has supported me. Your gentleness made me great. You're going through hardship, but God will strengthen your hands to do the work of Christ anyway. He will make your feet like a deer. He will train your hands for war for the glory of Jesus. Let us pray. Lord, we are incredibly grateful for a God who has such compassion on us, and we know it to be true because we can see it in the cross. Lord, when we look at you, we see a God that was crucified for us because you had compassion upon us. You loved us. You were stirred so much that you would lay down your life for us. And so we know, Lord, that through the hardships that we go through, that you have still got compassion for us. And all we can do is cry out to you and you will hear. And you will be there for us. You will comfort us. You will strengthen our hands. You will uh, make us strong in you because you are our rock. But Lord, as well, you have called us to go out and be men and women on mission for the glory of Christ. And so, Lord, I ask that you would stir a deep in desire for us to share this wonderful good news with the world. Man, we have a God that loves us and has compassion for us. He has loves you and has compassion for you too. Lord, may that just be stirred in our hearts. 
We want this gospel not to just be kept quiet and for us, but you want it for the world. May you use us. Give us eyes to see you moving for the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen.